This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Those are called paper clips. Oh, so Milo's at home. Uh, Welcome to Tuesday's episode. It is super informative. It is very interesting. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Chuck Geddes or Geddes. I think I was saying Geddes, but I think it's Geddes. Anyways, He is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to child and youth mental health. He developed the Complex Care and Intervention Program as a way to embed a trauma-focused therapeutic perspective into the care of children in the foster system. He provides education and training to social workers, foster parents, and mental health clinicians across the province of British Columbia. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. He explains the difference between trauma and complex trauma, how trauma impacts the developing brain of a child, what a shame-based identity is, why highly sensitive response systems can be made worse by attachment disruptions, and we get into what attachment disruptions are. And also, he tells us how we can calm the stress response system in children to better connect with them. So I don't know if you noticed, but Milo is home today. Um, We had a visit with the dentist this morning and he did amazing. Did you like going to the dentist? You did so good at the dentist. He did really, really, really well. He actually had fun and I have been talking up the dentist all week because it is so much fun to go and it was great. So Good timing because next Friday I'm going to be chatting with my dentist, Dr. Lowe, on the podcast. We're going to talk all about dental health, kids' dental health, adults, like just random questions. Like, should we be scraping our tongues? You know, because I do, and it's incredible what comes off my tongue. And so I feel like everyone should be doing it, but he's going to let us know. So, anywho, please welcome Dr. Chuck Geddes to the Mom Room podcast. All right, today I am speaking with registered clinical psychologist and founder of Complex Trauma Resources, Dr. Chuck Geddes. So thank you for coming on. To start, I thought you could tell us why you created Complex Trauma Resources and what that is. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me this morning, Renee. I appreciate an opportunity to share some of the things that we've learned with your audience. Yes, I founded the the organization Complex Trauma Resources here in British Columbia uh, about 10 years ago now. And at that point, we were working with children within the foster care system and adoption systems. And we just found that many of the caregivers were really struggling, that the kids were struggling and the caregivers were struggling. And uh, so the, the mission of Complex Trauma Resources is really to try and equip caregivers. So whether that's biological parents, extended family, foster parents, adoptive parents, people in staffed homes caring for some of our really challenging kids, to try and equip them with a kind of knowledge and understanding to help their children. And I think what we what we were learning is that, well, I guess if you, you think about how we, you know, how we um, care for kids and intervene with kids, we have sort of some implicit uh, ideas about what we think will work. And we have our own 
a history of being cared for as kids, and you know, we've got that kind of template to work off of. And one of the things that we were really seeing is that unless we really understood the challenges that kids in our care systems were presenting with, that we weren't going to be intervening in the right kind of ways. And so that idea of needing to help people with their understanding about children and trauma and stress and adverse childhood experiences and that that changing that understanding would lead us to to be working with caring for our kids in a different way. So that's why we set up our organization. I know there's a website that has a ton of resources. Is it also for like you run things in the community like to teach parents or foster parents about trauma and about how to interact with children or parent them? Yeah, so Complex Trauma Resources has a couple of different arms. So the the uh, main thing that we've done through the years is providing clinical services directly for children and families uh, and uh, you know caregivers where that's struggling. And our approach is actually to work with the care team. So we don't see the children directly. We work with the team of adults that are caring for the kids and we're providing education for them. We do a uh, education about trauma, how to look at kids differently. We end up doing an assessment on each of the kids um, with a real focus on how trauma might have affected their development. And then we have intervention plans that we develop out of that and, and we stick with the team and kind of coach them through the process of, of working with kids differently, you know, moment by moment, day by day. So that's kind of one arm, that's kind of that direct clinical services. And then we also provide training. So we do that for, again, for caregivers, we're doing that for organizations like the Children's Protective Services, or we're doing that also for, you know, foster parents associations. Now we're branching out and doing quite a bit with schools as well. So we're doing, so training is kind of the other side of it. So that what we're doing with the website particularly is trying to provide resources for people to uh, you know, teach them to understand their kids differently and interact with them differently. Let's start at the very basic question of what is trauma? Especially today, I feel like it's a little bit of a buzzword and it's overused. But is there like a standardized definition of what trauma is or how would you describe trauma? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed that out, Renee, because there's uh, words around everywhere and everywhere we go, we have people saying they're doing trauma-informed practice. Um, and, and yet oftentimes they can't really define that very well. You know, I'm not so much a person that relies on a standard definition. I guess I would think that, you know, all of our lives have stress and there's uh, stressful events that we experience and those can either be kind of helpful and a challenge that we have that causes some stress. So coming on a podcast with you today and getting the tech right, there's some challenges to that, right? But so if I can manage those challenges, then that stress is something that actually builds my capacity and my confidence and, and my ability to handle new situations. So where, where stressful events or difficult events move to be more traumatic is where that's really taxing our ability to cope. So it's too much for us in the moment. So whether that's with our own kind of emotional resources, whether that's we're just too scared in that particular situation to function very well, or we don't have the uh, support systems around us to help us through those events, then those could be more traumatic. So, so I think trauma is more of a sort of a continuum going from, you know, kind of normal stressful events to a place where we're having, we're struggling to cope with that. It's becoming more sort of traumatic. And the, you know, we, we can think about 
certain things that we could look at and say, wow, we're seeing pictures from the Ukraine right now and refugees streaming out of these cities and peoples are devastated. They are overwhelmed. Clearly that's traumatic. And so we can, we can probably all look at uh, certain events and think, wow, that's going to be traumatic and that's going to be traumatic. One of the things that we're learning in that sort of shift from something that's stressful to being too much stress or toxic stress, as it's called sometimes, is that the accumulation of those stresses can be just as important as the actual event that we've been through. So, so whether that's sort of accumulation of, let's say, some family stress, there's some losses or deaths, there's uh, conflict within the family, there's poverty, those are accumulating stressors that at some point can become sort of traumatic, right? And then, and then more and more traumatic, depending on how intense that is, how inescapable it is. These are some of the factors that would make it like, more traumatic in a sense. Like, can two people go through the exact same situation and for one, it's traumatic, but for the other, it is not? Absolutely. And I, I think part of the reason for that is it's uh, interesting. We have our own sort of personalities and our own ability to kind of cope with things. But the more I learn about the effects of trauma on, well, really coming at it from the perspective of child development, the more I, I suspect that if we looked at two people coping with a situation differently, that if we sort of dug into their histories, we'd actually see that there were more traumas kind of building up for the, the person who has trouble with the new thing as opposed to having, you know, because what happens is it's affecting our, so when there's too much stress or these traumatic events building up in our lives, what happens is it affects the way our nervous system develops. It affects our perception of the world. It's affecting a lot of different things. So, so a person who's had those early experiences that are more on that traumatic end, those piling up of difficult, stressful experiences, they're gonna have less capacity to cope with the new thing coming at them because their nervous systems are sort of set to be in this kind of highly alarmed state. So some of it's personality, some, but I think a lot of it probably has to do with early life experiences. As a research nerd, I'm just curious, how is trauma defined in research or how do you measure it? This is where my mind always goes. Like how in a research study do you study trauma if it's something that is kind of you know, people can go through the same situation and one would have trauma, the other would not. Like, how is it looked at in research usually? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's almost uh, becomes, uh, it's almost in the eye of the beholder in a sense, right? So is it, are we going to define this as traumatic or not? You know, in the, the child protection world, which is where I mostly work, most of the research would look at sort of events. So do we think that this child experienced emotional abuse, physical abuse, neglect, like we're trying to kind of categorize experiences that someone has had and looking at maybe the accumulation of those events as well. But that's kind of where the, I don't think it gets defined as carefully as maybe as what you're, you're suggesting. Okay, so what is complex trauma and what are the differences between just trauma or complex trauma? Again, a really important question. So when we talk about complex trauma or complex developmental trauma would be another way that this is thought of. What we're looking at is, the, is when we have an accumulation of these stressors or toxic stressors or, or traumatic events that are building up, particularly in the first five, six years of life, that's when the brain is 
uh, rapidly developing. The child is learning about the world there, um, and we're developing these pathways, neural pathways. So nervous system, our, there are pathways in our brain to connect these different events and kind of under, understand in a sense. And so we're learning about the world. So what happens is when we have too much stress during those formative years, and this could include in utero as well, so before birth, but when there's too much stress there, what happens is that the nervous system, the way that it's developing and the way the brain's developing is interfered with. So one of the particular things that happens is that when we're in stressful situations over and over, our body gets ready to move to that fight or flight place, and, but internally what's happening is that we're secreting cortisol and adrenaline, and cortisol particularly is toxic to, uh, to brain growth, to nervous system growth. And so when we're sort of uh, flooded with too much cortisol, it's interfering with and actually kind of undermining the attempts of the child to, child system really to sort of learn about the world. So that's one, one side of it. The other side of it is that, that as we're getting traumatic events, so, so a child's just living in a stressful situation. Let's say there's a lot of conflict in the home. Maybe there's some family violence. The child gets hit periodically. There's, there's lots of inconsistency. They don't know when, if they're going to get fed. They are, there's kind of over-the-top punishment at times, those kinds of situations. So there's nothing maybe that would kind of make us think, wow, that's really traumatic. That particular event was particularly traumatic. But overall, the child's sort of growing up in this too stressful of a situation. So there, that's where Harvard, the Harvard Center on the Developing Child talks about this as being toxic stress. So the other thing that's happening besides the cortisol is that your body is being, your body's trying to survive. And so for, our, for a child, they're trying, they're, what happens is they are looking for and getting ready for the next event. How do I survive this event? Do I need to hide? Does this mean I'm going to be hit? Is something bad going to happen? And what happens is that the, uh, the brain systems that are, are geared towards helping us to survive, move us to that fight or fight or freeze place, that they're getting sort of used over and over and over again. And so that, in a sense, that survival brain is almost kind of pulsing. So we've got this kind of over and over kind of repetitive stress responses happening over and over and over. And so the brain systems that are, it's almost like sort of exercising a muscle. So if you think about the different brain systems, we want kids to be learning language. We want to be, them to be learning social interactions. We want them to be learning how to connect with people and receive love and care. We want them to uh, manage sensory information. So as, as uh, we have noise and uh, sounds and touch and taste and, and these things, so we want them to be learning about those and learning what they like and what they don't like and how to respond to different things. But when that stress alarm is going off all the time, then that becomes almost like the muscle that's being used over and over again. And so that it's almost sort of pushes out the learning that should be happening in these other areas because what's happening is the body's just going stress alarm, stress alarm, stress alarm, and trying to respond to that. So, so we end up finding there's some pretty consistent ways that that kind of stress ends up affecting a child's development. So we see issues around, we actually have a system for this we call uh, No One Eats Apples in BC. Seven developmental domains with that acronym, No One Eats Apples in BC. And 
it, it looks at things like the sensory sensitivities that a child would have at, at the kind of neurological level, the end level is that basic brain functioning. So sensory sensitivities, recognizing signals within your own body, your fine motor control, large motor control, those kinds of things. But we also see that kids struggle with stress response. So a little bit of stress, you were talking about it, um, how two children might respond to a situation quite differently. But our children really struggle often with managing a stress response, often living in a state of high hyper alert and being very quick to kind of trigger and go over into a, into a place where they're overwhelmed. We look at just going through our acronym, no one eats apples and we see emotion regulation, attachment and relationships, identity, who am I in the world, where do I belong, where do I fit in, how do I understand what's happening around me, uh, my ability to manage my behavior, and then things around cognitive and language ability, language, memory, these kinds of things. So, there, so these, when we have too much of this stress in those first prenatally up through you know, age six-ish, when the brain's most rapidly developing learning about the world, we end up seeing, when there's too much stress there, we end up seeing this wide range of developmental lag, lags in children. So they're just not keeping up with where peers are at because their brain systems have been so much focused on safety and protection. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Lil Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume 
consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. So if caregivers are taking care of children who have had trauma or complex trauma, what are some differences? Because I think... You know, a lot of people listening, we have these ideas of how we should interact with children and parent them in, you know, I say in air quotes, like the proper way. So what are some differences that you would see when parenting or taking care of a child that hasn't had trauma versus a child that has? One of the most interesting things I think for us through the years has been to to try and think about a child's developmental level like their developmental age in a sense versus their chronological age. And so I think oftentimes when children are referred to us, you know, they might be uh, 10 years old and people have been frustrated for a number of years. The child's not doing well. They're struggling with their emotions and and their behavior and struggling at school. And maybe there's some issues with attachment. And, you know, one of the first things that we're trying to coach our team is to realize that the chronological age of the child is not where they are developmentally. They're not capable. They're not like a typical 10-year-old. So they're actually, as we go through this assessment and we look at across a child across those seven developmental domains, we often are finding that the child's functioning more like a five-year-old or more like a four-year-old or even like a toddler in some ways because their development's sort of gotten stuck by the by that combination of trauma and then probably caregiving that wasn't really recognized that in meeting those needs. So kids are way behind developmentally. And so that's one of the things. Um, I actually have some foster parents that have been working with us for a while, and they were, they've been talking about how well the kids are starting to do that they care for. And when we asked them, well, what, you know, what is it that's making a difference? What do you think's helping them? The kids are not having the big meltdowns that they were having before. They seem to be able to accept a little bit of um, correction without blowing up. And, you know, just things are just going better in the home. And the foster parent said, you know, one thing we're doing is we just keep thinking about that he's really more like a five-year-old. And so we actually, we look at each other, as I said, you know, dad and I look at each other and we go, five years, five years. And then we kind of adjust our expectations down to that lower level. And it's interesting when we do that, because I think it's, you know, we really try and come out of that as a, come at that from a perspective of having empathy for the child and trying to understand what they can manage and then provide the sort of scaffolding that they need to move forward. So when our expectations are too high, when we have this, you know, we keep telling ourselves, but he's 10, he should be able to do these things. My expectations for him are okay for a 10 year old. That ends up frustrating the child and frustrating the parent because the child can't get there because they can't do that. So we're saying, okay, let's see if we can just slow down. Remember, he's more like a five year old in this moment. And how would we respond differently? And oftentimes parents find that, that that engages their compassion a little bit more and they slow down, they come down to the child's level, they try and support rather than just sort of set this expectation that they're hoping the child would, would meet. So that's one of the one of the things. And I think you know, whether a child's had a lot of trauma or not, there's times when your kids are gonna struggle in a particular situation. And at that moment, they're not capable of sort of acting their age. 
And yet we as the parents often, we want them back their age. Come on, you're, you know, whatever, four or you're eight or you're 12, whatever. And, and we have this sort of expectation of what, what that should look like. But oftentimes the kids are actually in that moment needing a lot more support. So that's one of the ideas, that kind of idea of a developmental age. The other thing that I think is just so, so important is the idea that when kids have lived with a lot of stresses and trauma, and again, I don't want to park on the trauma side of this so much, because I know with your audience, if we just think about the stresses that we're living through right now, so the stresses over the past few years with the pandemic, people losing income, people under stress for different reasons, people fearful of health, um, all the masking, all these things are kind of signs of, there's, there's a lot of fear out there, a lot of stress out there. And so even typical kids, I think at the moment, are often kind of being sort of bathed in stress in different ways, right? We're, it's, we're kind of, parents are in it, we're feeling it, our kids are feeling it too. One of the things that happens when we have more of kind of that trauma background that I was talking about uh, for kids is that their brain alarm systems get set on high alert. So I, I love a description of this by a fellow named Bessel van der Kolk, who's an international trauma researcher. So what Bessel van der Kolk talks about is that the amygdala, so, you, so in your brain you've got two little structures that function as what he calls the smoke alarm detector of the brain. And so the amygdala is the thing that's sensing that there's danger and then that kind of launches your body into getting ready to respond to that danger. So, oh, there's a bear there, I need to respond to that bear. But when the amygdala, when you've experienced a lot of trauma, the amygdala is set on high alert. So if you imagine a smoke alarm that is set so, so, so sensitively that if somebody walks by it, it goes off. Somebody's got too much aftershave, it goes off. And so I think many of our children, when we... When there's too much stress in their lives and they're, when they've experienced this kind of toxic stress or complex trauma, for these kids, that smoke alarm is going off or on the edge of going off all the time. So, in, so what we see on the outside is the kid seems relatively calm, but inside, bah, 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 they're, they're hearing that and responding to stresses that might not be apparent in the environment. So they're almost kind of responding unconsciously to things that are happening around them. So when we think about how do we care for kids that have that kind of history, that's often the place we have to start. What do we have to do to quiet this child's alarm systems? Because when that alarm's going off, they're not going to respond to much of anything. They're going to emotionally have big emotional meltdowns, big behaviors. But if we can calm them, help to calm them down first, then we'll be able to sort of step forward with them. And, and so that calming, that the need to do that becomes kind of foundational. And it's not just, oh, he looks like he's getting stressed now. Now we'll step in with some calming strategies. You're probably too late at that point. And so for, so for children who are living at that uh, high end of the stress staircase where they're just, just um, feeling the fear and anxiety and that a little alarm system's going off, we think about how do we preventatively try and quiet down their stress alarm system regularly throughout the day. We want to reset that system in a sense to a quieter place, a calmer place. Are there things that can act as a buffer to trauma? Like you mentioned attachment a few times, and I'm just thinking if there's a child that is in a situation where it's, you know, not one major traumatic event, but you know, over the course of time, they just live in a really stressful environment. But let's say they have this really secure attachment with like a teacher or a counselor, like, can something like that act as a buffer and 
maybe prevent serious consequences of the the stressful environment? Yeah, absolutely. And it and it really just takes one key relationship where the child feels cared for and accepted and and uh, and loved, and that's going to be a you know a major buffer. And it's interesting talking with children who've been in our foster care system and often in the foster care system for a lot of years. And when they age out of care and we interview them, what we find out is, you know, if they can identify that one person. So as you said, it could be a particular foster parent. It could be a, a family friend that's stuck with them through thick and thin. It might be an auntie or a grandma. It might be a school teacher. But if they've got that one key relationship, that's often the thing that they just feel like they are hanging on to that helps them to uh, to come out the other side. Mm, I love that. Can you explain what a shame-based identity is and why children who have experienced trauma tend to operate from a place of shame? Yeah, so this is such an important concept. And we've learned a lot of, about uh, shame from a psychologist named Dr. Daniel Hughes. What he writes about and talks about is really informs our thinking on this. So when a child's experiencing these difficult circumstances, so so again, we're talking, we're thinking particularly of children who are in our foster system or they've been adopted or even adopted internationally or, or even just you know, maybe living with other caregivers other than their parents because their parents were struggling and couldn't manage them or whatever. So as those experiences are happening, it seems like the way that we understand those as a child is that there's something wrong with us. So kids have this kind of idea of a locus of control, but we think that we are responsible for the things that happen to us. And so for young children, when there is abuse or neglect or family conflict or they can't live with one of their parents or somebody gets sick and dies, or what does the child think? It's not even, uh, sorry, I'm saying the child thinks, but I, th- I actually think this happens more at a gut feeling level. This somehow I'm responsible and I feel that these things happen because there's something wrong with me. My, so for our kids, I'm in foster care because there's something wrong with me. I'm in, I move from one home to another because I'm broken. There's something, un, I'm unlovable. So a deep sense of, that's what we call this sense of shame. So it's not a sense, it's not, it's different than guilt. It's not guilt, oh, I did this bad thing, but it's a sense of there's something wrong with me. I'm not lovable. I'm not worth, worthy, as a, worthy of someone's care and attention and love. And it's almost like this gut feeling. And, you know, too often we see children carrying that sense of shame with them throughout their life. And so when some, something new happens that's painful or hard for them, they blame themselves. They might hurt themselves. We've got children that you know, will hit themselves in the head. They'll, they'll punch the wall, not to break the wall, but because they want to hurt their hand or where they will, you know, kids, teenagers that get into cutting or other things where they're basically taking this feeling out on themselves. There's something wrong with me. And it's a really, really important idea when we think about attachment because when we're trying to provide care and attention to a child who has that deep sense of shame, then they'll, it won't fit for them. And so we, we provide care. We've got so many caregivers that, you know, think if we just go in and love these kids, you know, they're going to heal and get better. And th- there's obviously a lot of truth in that, but it's, it's sort of love is not enough in a sense, because 
a child with a deep sense of shame will fight that and not accept that. It's really, really hard to, for them to take that in. That's where you get that idea sometimes of children kind of sabotaging this relationship. It's like, why do they, we're just getting close to them and then they do something really mean to push me away. Why does that happen? Well, I think it's because of that deep sense of shame that many of them are carrying. I know you're going to leave me eventually, so I'm going to test you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to see if you're going to leave me because I know you're going to go because I'm not worthy of this. And so what's your advice for caregivers who are dealing with that? You know, I think one of the things that we found is that shame is because it's that sort of deep gut feeling that we people carry about themselves, children carry about themselves, that it's not something we can attack directly. It's something that will change. But it's almost like the, I feel like the shame response, that identity, well, particularly the shame response, it's almost like the caboose on the train. So we need to be doing a lot of other things first. And if we do those consistently enough, that identity will gradually begin to change. So so in that, what things do we need to do? We're always talking about how do we take stress off of this child's plate? How do we quiet things down, slow things down, help them to be in a, trying to change their baseline, their stress response baseline, stress arousal baseline? How do we do that on a regular basis? And then while we're doing that, how do we connect and attach in meaningful ways? And we think about kind of the, we look at the child's particular style, their attachment style that they bring to the relationship and your attachment style and think about, okay, is this a child who's coming towards people that wants to be connected or is this a child that's kind of moving away, wants to be tendencies to just be distant. They haven't sort of learned that you know, attachment and connection with people can feel good. And so we have different, we, we sort of set up different strategies depending on what that child's, the way that they show that attachment style. But I think we're, we're trying to build those attachment experiences, decrease the stress, and then working on other elements of identity. So many of our, the children we work with feel like failures. They feel like I'm constantly in trouble. No one likes me. You know, I don't do well at school. All these kinds of feelings that they're having. So lots of feelings of, of failure. So we're think, looking at ways that we can, how can we celebrate their personality strengths, they're, you're patient, you're caring, you've got, you know, you're, you stand up for justice. Like, what are these, some of these personality traits that we can sort of point out and, and build up? So we're trying to build up that successful side of, that, of identity. And the shame will come along, but it's, uh, it's slower to change. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. 
This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Lots of parents are listening. And attachment is a huge topic that I talk about, people are so curious about. It's like a, all of a sudden it's like a mainstream thing, like building a secure attachment with your child. If a parent came to you and they were like, how do I foster a secure attachment with my child? Like what are some key things that they can do to do that? Well, first off, I, I think we should, we should just say, you know, our aim is to be sort of good enough parents. We'd like to be great parents, but I, there's a lot of parents listening there thinking, oh, I just don't, you know, I'm kind of failing a lot of the time. I'm failing my kids. One of the biggest things is that people worry so much about singular events when it comes to attachment. Like, oh my God, I have two babies at home. One was crying, so I couldn't pick up the other one. And now I just screwed up their attachment. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) So yes, it's built up over time. So don't worry about like those little situations, but go ahead. (laughs) Yes, that's a a big relief to know that if we get this right most of the time or more of the time than we get it wrong, our kids are going to be fine. What are elements of that? Yeah, responding to the child's needs when they need you, but responding, I think, with empathy is really important so that we're concerned about their emotion and that we validate the feeling. doesn't mean we have to solve the particular problem that they have, but we want to validate the feeling. So let's think about what that experience is like. So I'm a child and I'm upset about something and, and the parent comes and they they look me in the eye and say, oh, yes, I can understand why you'd feel like that. That's a bad feeling. Oh, I wish that didn't happen to you. What's that do? Oh, number one, that just takes my stress down. I feel like, oh, someone gets me. Someone's listening to me. Someone understands me. And that takes a lot of the stress out. And I think that oftentimes parents can move fairly quickly from that, from that validation to a hug to a let's move on. And what that's teaching the child over time is to regulate that emotion and that they can come out the other side of that emotion. You know, one of the 
struggles that I think that we have, well, parents tend to think they need like lots and lots amount of time, lots and lots of talk. And I think that if we got the, uh, just that validation part down, paid attention enough and validated, we'd be way ahead of the game lots of times. Um, you know, quality time, I'm sure you're talking about this on your podcast a lot, but, you know, really finding those moments when this is just you and I time and whether this, so if you got little ones, this is just a little bit of child-led play for 10 or 15 minutes where they're leading and we're watching and commenting on what they're doing and we're participating a little bit, but we're just letting them kind of lead. That particular child-led play builds up so much healthy attachment and connection, but it gives the child a sense of worth and value just for, and that can be 10 minutes. Well, I think about parents that talk about their kids being kind of clingy and they come and they always, they're always needing me and they come to me at those times when I'm least able to respond. You know, so I'm on the phone, I've got somebody that I'm talking to, I'm making dinner, I'm involved in some other kind of task. And, uh, you know, one thing I tried to sort of train myself in, I think, was to, to just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, instead of trying to push kids away, because I think what that does is just ramps up that needy feeling. So they tend to come back, they either feel rejected and they may come back with more demands, more clingy kind of behavior. So one of the things that I try to do is to just try and tell myself, okay, I can, if this, I can turn for one minute and give full attention for one minute and then go back to the thing I'm doing. I don't have to, and if I do that regularly enough, even just that minute, that again is, sort of calming down that need that the child's expressing and I'll come and I'll be with you. And if we get, you know, so I have to finish this, but then I'll come and be with you. But it's almost like that little one minute, that one minute of attention and turning and focus, that can be enough sometimes. Or it might be if they're bugging you and you're on the phone, it might be, okay, look down, give them a nice squeeze. Okay, I got you, I'll hold your hand. Where I'm connecting with you and I'll be with you in a minute, you know, rather than trying to push them away because I think that just de- increases that anxious need to try and get your attention right then. It's like when my husband's on his phone and I want his attention. (laughs) It's the same kind of thing. (laughs) But yeah, I can relate to that. Sometimes I find myself, I'm like, oh, I just have to quickly answer this email. So, you know, I'm on my phone and if our son comes up to me, I want to just be like, oh, like, I have to do this quickly, you know, like, give me a minute. But he doesn't understand. So most often I'm like, is it going to kill me to send this in five minutes from now? No, it doesn't matter. So it's really, like you said, approaching them with empathy and trying to understand, you know, their point of view. He doesn't understand that I have to send an email. Like, he doesn't get that. I like how you talked about validating their emotions and how verbalizing to them maybe what they're feeling and acknowledging that something is difficult kind of takes a weight off their shoulders. And it made me think about me when I'm anxious and I just verbalize it to my husband, I instantly feel better. So it's interesting. They don't have the capacity to maybe recognize what they're feeling, but so we can, so we can verbalize it for them. It makes them, you know, calm. I love that example. And you probably don't need your husband to solve your problem for you particularly. No. Which, which us guys like to do. Yeah. But like, really just to somebody to just listen, right? And yeah. And even and need to even to validate the feeling. It's like, okay, that's what I needed. And I think for for children it works a lot the same way. 
So, and, and then it's got the added bonus of now we're providing some language for them. So you think about young kids, they're just feeling there's something they're feeling and it's upsetting and they don't have language for it. And so, oh, I can see that you're feeling sad right now. Or, oh, it looks like you're feeling disappointed or you're feeling left out or whatever the, you know, we might sort of um, guess. I guess we're, we're guessing a little bit, right? Oh, I wonder if you might be feeling. So I like that terminology, actually. I wonder if you might be feeling this. And whether they sort of accept that or not, you're giving them a little bit of language. Like, oh, maybe that's so over time, if they can learn some language for some of the feelings they're having, it gives some control over that feeling. And it actually helps helps them to have the feeling without being overwhelmed by it. Oh, okay, I recognize this. This is that left out feeling. Okay, it still feels bad, but at least I know what it is. And also a huge thing is as adults, we often look at kids' problems and we're like, oh, come on. Like I remember when he was younger, he's three and a half now, but when he was about two, he would want to bring certain toys in the bathtub and like they couldn't go in the bathtub. They had batteries or whatever it was. And he would have full-blown meltdowns. And so as a parent, you're like, oh my God, really? Like, because you can't bring Spider-Man in the bathtub, you're going to have a meltdown. But then I thought about it and I was like, that's his best friend. Like, he doesn't want to let go of him. So it is a big deal to him. It's like looking at things through their eyes. Because yeah, oftentimes they're so upset and having meltdowns over things that are kind of silly. But it's not to them. It's serious stuff. And if you try and have that empathy for what, how they might be viewing it, that's hard to do as a parent when you're trying to get through the routine, right? And, but, um, but when you're able to do that, then you can be a little bit more creative, creative about it because it's not a yes-no proposition anymore. It's like, okay, so if he really wants his friend to be near him, Spider-Man, what could we do? Maybe Spider-Man can sit up here on the towel rack and watch you while you're in the bath. Which is something that, you know, some way, yeah, to, so it's not an absolute no, right? It's kind of a, trying to work around it a little bit. Can you... Briefly explain why the highly sensitive response system can be made worse by attachment disruptions, losses, or painful separations. Yeah, there's probably a lot of layers to that one. So, so what's the so if a child's got a highly sensitive response system, so it's telling us that they don't feel sort of safe and maybe in control, like they're they're worried. They're not feeling safe. They're not feeling like they've got the resources to manage something. So so when we've got kids that are reacting over and over and over again, this isn't the sort of two-year-old tantrums necessarily, right? This is this is children that we would expect a little bit more from, and they're just not able to do that. So they're so they're actually feeling, whether they can verbalize it or not, feeling afraid and anxious and unsafe. So what helps us, we already talked about that kind of resiliency piece. When, there's, when we know there's someone in our corner, when we know there's someone there to protect us, to take care of us, that, that helps so much with that feeling, right? But now, we're, now if we've got that highly sensitive stress response and now we're losing relationships, oh my goodness, or don't have that person right when we need them it can feel like the end of the world because this last little, you know, hope I had that this person would be there for me and protect me is going. And so that's going to make me even more anxious, even more stressed. This is a little bit of an aside to that, but I, uh, a friend of mine talks about sort of putting coins in the meter with the child, with attention for a child. And that, you know, so I think this, it's a helpful idea that if I give that attention up front, 
I'm putting coins in their meter and they'll be able to last for a while without needing that same level of attention from me again. And if I can, when I think that about children that are anxious around relationships with adults and they've had a lot of losses, if we can get there first with the attention and then go away, now that, so we, we come and we give them their, you know, we give five minutes of attention. And with a typical kid that might last for an hour and then they don't need us again for a while. But with kids who've experienced trauma and losses and are you know, just feeling kind of insecure in the world, um, they've had these traumatic events, that feeling of being connected might only last five minutes. So their meter's starting to tick. So we give them the, give them the attention and tick, 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 inside them that's starting to, the, the meter's starting to wind down. If the meter gets to zero, bam, time's up, and they need it again, and they come running to us at that point for that attention, then number one, we might not be in a spot right then to give it to them, which creates more anxiety and creates more kind of clinginess. But the second thing is we, we end up setting up this pattern almost where we are teaching them the way to get my attention is to come and be dramatic to get my attention, right? And that, I, with that we almost sort of set up this behavioral response that, oh, I learn if I go and I get really clingy and crazy, then mom's going to stop what she's doing and she's going to give me the attention that I need. But if we can think about it sort of as this uh, coins in the meter idea, that if we can get there before that meter runs out, give a little bit more attention, it resets the meter. Give a li- and so we're, we're doing that on kind of a regular basis that um, over time, the meter will last longer and longer. Okay, so one of the reasons we don't like doing that as adults is we think, that, oh my goodness, if I give him, you know, if I give him five minutes of attention now, then he's just going to want, you know, he's going to want more and more. And we we're thinking about how do we manage all that, but but really, I think it kind of works the other way when we can, when we get there first with the attention before their attachment alarm is going off, then actually we can put in a few more coins, and that's that's extending the time, extending their comfort in not having you right there with them. And they'll learn over time to be able to manage things on their own. I'm just picturing like a child running to like get their coins, get the attention. So if the caregiver or the parent responds positively, like you said, it can set up this cycle of them learning, like this is what I have to do to get attention. But if they go over there and they get negative attention, like they get yelled at, is that still considered attention for most kids or does it deter them from going back yeah that's an interesting uh interesting dynamic so you know i i guess i i'm thinking about if we just think about this from the attachment side so children want to be connected with us and they feel secure in the world when they feel that there's a connected adult there for them so when children are coming from a place of not feeling that so they don't feel that they have secure attachments that they don't know what to expect then that's highly stressful to them. And they're trying to kind of read you and figure you out, you know, in terms of what, what I can expect and what, what I can ask for, what I'll get, when I'm going to make you mad. The you know, kids are trying to figure that out too because attachment's a dance. It's a relationship between two people, right? So we're trying to figure each, kind of figure each other out. So, so we hear about kids where negative attention, where they will seek any attention. So I would say these are children that do not feel securely attached and any kind of attention is better than none. 
So they will seek out even the negative attention. Or if I can't get, I actually had an, an adult woman tell me this the other day. She'd done this really dramatic thing as a kid where she had uh, done a lot of damage at a neighbor's house, completely out of character. And, and she said, you know why I did that? Because I, it was the only way I thought I could get some attention at home because the other children in the family were really needy. And so she felt like she was the good kid all the time and just all out of the blue did this really dramatic thing because she felt like the negative attention, at least it was some attention, you know? That's, wow, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic drive that we have. So for kids with an insecure attachment, they don't feel like their needs are being met, then, then maybe they would be seeking out that negative, negative attention. So we want to reverse that pattern, right? We're trying to figure out how do we start to build that positive attachment so they don't need to be seeking the negative. You mentioned one thing there, Renee, about just to sort of clarify. So if a parent's uh, busy, a child comes running up and the child wants some attention. So, so giving attention to our kids isn't a bad thing. So that's a good thing, right? So giving attention and responding in a positive way when they come up, that's a good thing. So that's not going to set up kids to be more needy. That's actually sort of meeting their attachment needs. I think where we, uh, I just want to clarify when I was talking about that, setting up that negative kind of behavioral cycle is that we're only responding when the child's doing dramatic, over-the-top, clingy, demanding kind of behavior, and that's when we respond. So that's where it would set up that, you know, that kind of negative dynamic. This was a great episode, so much value. Um, I know you have a book coming out. Congratulations on that. Where can people purchase the book? When is it coming out? And what is it about? Like, who would the book be for? Uh, as we were chatting before the show, you told me that this uh, the the Mom Room podcast was your kind of your COVID uh, project, and actually this book was my COVID project. So back in you know, two years ago, when this when we got locked down and things changing, I thought, man, I've, we've been talking about writing a book about this for quite a few years, and now I've got time to do it. So we finally sat down and and uh, got to writing and really tried to to think about what have we learned about trauma and about kids and about caregiving and how to help caregivers and 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 even how to change our system and our foster care and adoptive systems um, you know what we can be doing better and so that so the book is called children and complex trauma a roadmap for healing and recovery children and complex trauma a roadmap for healing and recovery and it's really i've tried to write it in a very kind of conversational sort of way so that it would be appropriate for a pretty wide audience so i was thinking about this again this is the foster care system in british columbia in particular is where we we end up working but i was thinking about how do we talk to the social worker and the professionals and the foster parent and uh, school teacher, how do we understand, what do we have to understand about the effects of complex trauma in kids? And then from that, what can we do to help them heal and recover? We've been at this now for uh, 12 years. We've seen, uh, worked with over 350 children and youth within our system over that time. They're all kids that are referred to us because nothing else is working. And we've seen dramatically positive results um, just by taking some pretty simple strategies. So I think, you know, in terms of the audience, I think that it's hopefully a broad audience and there are things that within the book that are going to appeal to or kind of fit for people from each one of those kind of streams. Yeah, so the book's available now. It's a, available. The best way to get it at the moment is through Friesen Press. Friesen Press. So you can search for Friesen Press, Dr. Chuck Geddes, and that's uh, Geddes, G-E-D-D, 
S and we've got it. It's available on Amazon and other sites as well, but Amazon's really slow to get their pricing sorted out. So actually <laughs> the numbers on the Amazon page as of today look crazy. So we're pointing people to freeze and press instead. He's too busy going to space, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And I'd love to, um, and if people are interested in the other, some of the other things we've talked about today, our website is full of ideas and resources and blogs and other things. That's, that's at complextrauma.ca, complextrauma.ca. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This was great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Whoa.